Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. I sincerely hope that you have been using your, what I imagine is extra time well. For a lot of you, you are either quarantined in your homes or have decided to at least stay there a little bit more than usual in order to protect yourself and others from the coronavirus. And while you're at home, even if you've been using your time well, my guess is that the majority of you have been watching more TV than usual. Now, I think there are probably a hundred other better things that most of us could be doing than watching TV, and yet sometimes that's where we find ourselves. But what if you could redeem that time that you're spending watching sitcoms and other comedy shows and actually learn lessons from those shows that could help you be a better leader and a better business person? Well, I've either just wasted your time with a very highly specific hypothetical situation, or that is exactly what we're going to do today. But I'm going to make you listen to find out. Our guest today is a behavioral economist and global expert in the scientific study of humor. He directs the Humor Research Lab and hosts the podcast called I'm Not Joking. He's also the co-author of The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny, as well as the author of his most recent book, which was just released on April Fool's Day, called Stick to Business, What the Masters of Comedy Can Teach You About Breaking Rules, Being Fearless, and Building a Serious Career. He's a sought-after speaker and professor who teaches MBA courses for the University of Colorado Boulder, University of California San Diego, and London School of Business. Here is Dr. Peter McGraw. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these questions? Sure. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? You know, I'll say this. I actually think that one of the places that I've learned a lot from are from these, what I like to call the least professional professionals. That is from from the masters of comedy. It's part of the reason why I wrote this book is that we have this tendency to think about, about comedians as these kind of naturally talented people. I've never really thought of myself as a naturally talented person. I've always had that kind of overachiever kind of perspective, which is like, I just have to figure out a way to hack this and then just work really, really hard at it. And then what I found out is that like Jerry Seinfeld and Sarah Silverman and Chris Rock, they're exactly the same way, you know, that that their success comes from sort of hacking a system and then working really, really hard on it. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A leader is a good listener, generous, and a good leader takes risks. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Who do I need help from? What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Wow. So 
Right now, I think reading some of Nassim Taleb's books, whether it be Anti-Fragile or The Black Swan, is probably a good starting point. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? I would ask them to start journaling. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I think it's better to ask why when when crafting jokes, but it's better to ask why not when living life. I think that the world benefits from people's willingness to make mistakes and to take risks. And so asking why not is more of the kind of question that leads you to take to take a risk to take on a new challenge. Asking why it creates a sort of barrier in a sense that's there. Now, I will say this. I have a particular form of taking risks that I endorse, um, whether it be to an aspiring comic or to an aspiring entrepreneur or to a CEO. And that is you want to take small risks. So you want to limit your downside risk. That is, you want to fail in small ways, but you want to create decisions and behaviors and actions that have unlimited upside. So when a comic tries out a joke on stage, they don't do it during their Netflix special. They do it in a little dingy, small comedy club somewhere. And so if the 20 people who they're telling the joke to don't laugh, no big deal. But they may create the joke that makes their career. And so that's the kind of why not risk taking that I uh, like to endorse. So, Peter, we are here today to talk about your new book, Stick to Business, what the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. Now, before we started the actual recording of this interview, I was telling you that I had heard you on podcasts before, and I really like what you have to say about the intersection of humor and other parts of life, such as business. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you got into the scientific study of humor in the first place, because that's not something that we usually think about when we think about humor. When we, when we think about humor, we're not usually thinking scientific study. How did you get into studying humor and what are some of the things that you have learned through going about this process? Sure. Yeah. I had never really set out to study comedy. It, it wasn't something that I, I mean, I was interested in, in the same way that everybody is, which I enjoyed a good joke. And I, I liked watching, you know, some stand up or improv on occasion. What happened was I was studying moral psychology at the time. This is more than 10 years ago now. I, I was studying what makes things wrong. And I had been giving a talk at, so when you're an academic, you get invited to other universities and they, they fly you in and you have a bunch of meetings and, and they, they feed you a, a delicious meal and, and they invite you in for an hour, hour and a half to, to present some of your research. And then they just tear it apart for like that hour and a half. It's, <laughs> it's an honor you get to put on your curriculum vita. So I was giving this talk at, at a, a university and I was talking about church marketing. It was a fascinating topic to me at the time, like churches using business principles to save souls. And I used an entertaining example of a church that had been trying to get people to go to their winter retreat. And so they used a raffle with a really unusual grand prize, which was a yellow H2 Hummer SUV. Whoa. Yeah, pretty wild. And, you know, something that I think a lot of people would think of as uh, maybe 
on the wrong side of the equation. You know, do you you bribe people with a with a, a Hummer H two to get them to come come to church more often? Well, what was funny was my audience laughed, and a hand went up in the back of the room, and one of the the professors who had been quiet to that point, she asked me what ended up being the most important question that's ever been asked of me, which is you know, we're supposed to be upset about this and yet we're laughing. Why? And I I was just dumbfounded by that question. I had been studying emotions for more than 10 years. I had never considered what made things funny. I didn't know the answer clearly. I never read a paper about it. No one in my field was paying attention to this. And as you might imagine, it's an incredibly important question. One that I found out goes back 2,500 years to Greek philosophy. And yet the answer was still lacking. I came back to to Boulder, Colorado. I recruited this very bright grad student. And I said, we need to answer this question. And I think we can answer this question. Next thing I know, I'm launching the Humor Research Lab. I'm writing these dry esoteric papers. And I'm even finding myself on stage at a dive bar in Denver trying my own jokes. So talk about that a little bit. You are studying something, but then you find yourself actually doing it. I imagine that it's a lot harder to do stand-up comedy than it is to write about it and to research it. Is that accurate? That is accurate, at least for me. Yeah. You know, I, I would say this. Comedians would have a hard time writing a peer-reviewed paper, but I have a hard time being, you know, being funny on command. So, so what happened was, was that I, at that point, was naive. You know, I, I thought it was, you know, you know I, I'm, like, I'm like, as far as professors go, I'm pretty funny. Um, but as far as comics go, I'm terribly unfun. And so <laughs> what it did was, it, you know, I lost a little sleep over this, as I might imagine. And it, what it made me realize is, yes, I need a laboratory to to crack the humor code. But I also need to to really understand this. And I need to become a bit more of a like an anthropologist than a psychologist. And so I teamed up with this local Denver-based journalist, Joel Warner, and, and we we did what we called the humor code. We traveled around the world looking at at comedy in, in all its forms and, and its, its greatness and its failures. And, and it was really a, a, not only just a professional coup, but also just a life, life-changing experience. Yeah. And so after The Humor Code, now you've written this new book, Stick to Business. What was it that kind of got you from your initial writings and research on humor to focusing on this business emphasis? Well, you know, I had found myself um, working in a business school. I'm a, I'm a marketing professor. I, I, I teach MBAs marketing management. I teach PhD students behavioral economics. And so, you know, by day I'm, I'm teaching business and by night I'm, I'm decoding comedy. And I, I was eager to bring those two worlds together. And, um, and, and yet I wasn't satisfied. This actually relates to one of the lessons in the book. I wasn't satisfied with my first instinct. So my first instinct was to talk about humor and leadership and how, how leaders can use humor to be, more, to be more successful. I gave a talk about this in front of hundreds of people at one point in time. And after I gave the talk, I remember thinking, I'm not sure I should give this talk. And the reason is not because I don't believe that humor can be useful. It's just I don't believe that it's the best advice to give a room full of business people. That is that being funny is very difficult. Not everybody's good at it. And so if I tell everybody to be funny in order to be better leaders, I worry about that guy, the guy who 
thinks he's funny mm -hmm. and goes into the workplace and makes people uncomfortable. And so I, I was like, I can't do this. I need to think of something else. And that's where Stick to Business was born. It's not about being funny. It's about thinking funny. So this idea of thinking funny instead of being funny, essentially, you don't want to create a bunch of Michael Scotts, but you want to create people who can take these same principles that have made comedy masters effective and give these to business leaders in a way that they can use them not to crack jokes in the office, but to be more effective at what they do. Is that accurate? That's said perfectly. Yes, we don't need more Michael Scotts in the world, but what we need are people, especially nowadays, who can think creatively, can be improvisational, can make innovative things. And what's fascinating is these people who don't seem very good at business have the special sauce to help with those tasks. In the subtitle of your book, you talk about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. What can people learn from comedians about breaking rules and doing it in a way that is effective and actually accomplishes what the leader wants to accomplish. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the themes in the book is that the status quo should be avoided at all cost. That is like business as usual is not often a good way to do business because it's the way everybody's doing business. And what business rewards is being different, being differentiated. Being creative, what I like to say, solving problems in original ways. I'll give you an example of this. So it's, it's probably no surprise that Sarah Blakely of Spanx has a little bit of background having done some comedy. Because what, what Sarah did, you know, you know a self-made billionaire, this is, uh, this, is, this is an incredible story, is she, you know, she kind of pays attention like a comedian. So she, she essentially had... Um, these slacks that, that, that look great on her, except that they would show panty lines. And so she, she essentially took pantyhose, cut the feet out of them, and, uh, and solved the problem. And then recognized, oh, I think I can solve this problem for lots and lots of other people. But just because you have a good idea doesn't mean that it's going to be successful. So Sarah broke a lot of rules when it came to getting spanks off the ground. Even something as simply as looking at the way that pantyhose and, um, and hosiery was being packaged. She, she changed that completely. She used big, bold packaging, you know, and had these sort of cartoon characters of these sort of very stylish women of different ethnicities. Like she created packaging that, that just stood out from the rest. When she asked Banks into department stores, she contacted every person that she knew all the way back to like fourth grade folks she hadn't talked to mm. and said, will you please buy this product and I'll reimburse you for the, for the cost. So she was mailing checks all over the country to reimburse people just to help get the, pro the product going to keep it in these retailers. Now, she even noticed that when, when she was at Nordstrom, they had put the product in the hosiery department, a place that her target market would not go, was not venturing into. Mm -hmm. And so she took the product and she moved it to the cash registers where people would sort of stumble upon it. She didn't ask for permission because she knew that if she asked, she was going to get a no. And she just relied on the fact that the people working there was going to assume that she had, had gotten the higher ups approval in order to do this. You know, like she was willing to, she's not going to break the law. You know, she's not going to end up in an orange jumpsuit, but she's going to break some rules along the way in order to make 
not only a product that cuts through the clutter, but also one that's able to survive that long tail that we know happens with the adoption curve. So was it this this idea of avoiding the status quo that got people laughing at your comment about this church that was trying to promote their event by giving away a Hummer? Was it this kind of uh, shirking the status quo that got people laughing that day? Or was it something else when it came to getting that reaction from the audience that was listening to you? Yeah. So so to answer that question, I think it helps to understand what makes things funny in the first place. And so the work that we've done in, in the Humor Research Lab reveals that people laugh at things that are wrong yet okay what we call benign violations. And so to that academic audience, that was, that was wrong yet okay, right? It's, it's wrong to entice people to come to church with a, with a raffle that you, you sell, that you, that you give them this ostentatious gift. But you're doing it to save their souls. And so that, that benign violation is very clear to them. What comics are constantly doing is looking for what's wrong and looking for what's okay in the world and then communicating that. Well, I think oftentimes the best innovations have that feeling. That is, when you look at things like Airbnb and Uber, or even like the telephone, even the car, when it first came out, it seemed kind of crazy. It didn't seem right. It didn't seem to fit into the world. And yet it was very clearly okay. It solved a major problem. And now we just take these things for granted. Another part of your book is focused on being fearless. I don't think anyone would disagree with the fact that speaking in front of people can be a little bit scary. And especially when you are doing stand-up comedy, that seems to be the, the easy answer to the question, what can people learn about being fearless is, is, is learning from people in their stand-up scenarios. But what would you say are, are those top things that people can take away from, from comedy masters about being fearless in the work that they do? Yeah, I think you're right. Like clearly getting up in front of a stage and, and being willing to bomb in order to make people laugh is a fearless endeavor. I'll give you an example that I think is, is really important that's connected to both what everyday people can do and, and what comics do is, is comedians, ha- they know a little cheat code related to comedy. And that is this saying that is, it's funny because it's true. And while not everything that's true is funny, the things that about us that make us feel vulnerable, that scare us, often can be a good source of comedy. That is, so in the book, I have these, I have these little passages contributed by a comedian named Shane Moss. A comedian, he's, he's a very funny comedian. He's also a very good friend. And and Shane often says to me that when he's scared to talk about something on stage, he forces himself to talk about it. Hmm. So he demonstrates this sort of hardcore authenticity that you often see in the world of comedy. They talk about the things that, that make them uncomfortable. Now, I think that when it comes to business, so many businesses and so many business leaders are trying to put up this face that everything's okay and I've got this all figured out and this is what we're going to do and show no fear and so on. And yet people respond to authenticity. They respond to honesty and being authentic and telling the world what you're uncertain about and what you're scared about. First of all, is a way to ask for help when you need it. It makes people trust you more. And by the way, when you're not fearful, And when you're sure of something, 
then they're going to really get behind you because they know that you're not just putting up an act. And so what I often say is, think, how can you share with the world your authentic self, the good, the bad, and the ugly? And in that way, you create better connections, better trust, and a stronger belief when you're sure of where you're headed. So, Peter, when it comes to this idea of thinking funny instead of just trying to be funny, what are some other key ways of thinking that business leaders could could benefit from the mindset and the approach of the masters of comedy? Sure. I'll give you one of my favorites. I lead the book with it. It's The chapter is called Reverse It. What comedians sort of naturally do, or they learn it very early in their careers, is to produce an opposing perspective. That is when is to get people going one direction and then bring them back into the opposite direction. So, for example, in, in Chris Rock's recent special, Tambourine, he talks about how bullies are good, right? So the world agrees that bullies are bad, and yet Chris Rock finds comedy in how bullies might be good. Now, regardless of what you think of bullies or not, one of the things that is clear is that when everybody agrees on something – Going in the opposite direction what may put you into the blue ocean, hmm. may put you into a place where there's no competitors. And so I always encourage business leaders to think in reverse, right? So is everybody low, trying to lower prices? How might we raise prices, right? Is everybody cutting staff? How might we add staff? This is a weakness of this product. How do we turn it into a strength? Like thinking in reverse is um, a good way to smash the status quo and a good way to escape the competition. Would you say that you've done that with your career? As we've said earlier, humor is not something that people usually think about studying scientifically, but it seems like that has put you in a fairly unique place. Is that, is that how you think about this, this career focus of yours? I do, yes, actually, actually. So one of the things that really has been striking is that my academic peers didn't really encourage me to study humor. They, they thought of it as frivolous, as the silly thing that's there. And yet, I mean, anybody listening knows how important humor is to their own personal lives. You know, how, how much joy it creates, how important it is for their, for their friendships, for their, for their loved ones, for the people that they want to spend time to. It's something that they find refuge in during these uncertain, tumultuous times. They also recognize how, how challenging it can be. And so while it was seen as this sort of frivolous thing, I actually saw it as this really important thing and something worthy of scientific study. And the nice thing about it was because no one else was studying it, it gave me lots and lots of opportunity to publish these papers. To be honest, Josh, this is my legacy-inducing research that I've done in my career. Mm-hmm. And I've done it before I turned 50. You know, I, I'm having trouble thinking how I could come up with something even bigger than this. And so, um, yeah, I think like, yes, I took a risk with this. Yes, I was thinking differently when it, when it came to this. Yes, I, I acted in reverse, which was to um, study something that seems silly, you know, and make it serious. And so it's had, it's had really wonderful um, professional benefits. I mean, as I've written Stick to Business, I find myself using the lessons that I'm encouraging people to do. It's, it's really made me better at what I do as a result. So I've had, I, I feel really great because I'm, I get to enjoy my work even more. And I feel like I've come up with, with a bunch of ideas that can help the business leaders of the world um, and, and manage to sort of package it in a way that it's, it's kind of a fun read. 
You know, it's it, it it's not your normal boring business book. If I if I could be I'm not so humble. And you you bring up an interesting point with with your own career, which we don't necessarily need to delve into right now. But but I'm just thinking when you've been in a certain arena for a while, even when you've kind of made your your way, I imagine that thinking thinking to comedians people are always looking to change or to not get stuck in a rut. Are there things that we can learn from comedians as far as that goes as well? Yes, certainly. So the thing about comedy is it's not for the lazy, right? We, we might think that comedians are kind of lazy because they, uh, you know, they wear cargo shorts uh, to work and they sort of sit around seeming like they're doing nothing. But then act of creating comedy is because the search for novelty is so important, that is because a comic can't tell you the same joke twice, right? Starbucks can sell you pumpkin spice lattes every fall, hundreds of them, and survive, actually thrive. A comic has to constantly be not only seeking out new jokes for themselves, but have to be seeking out jokes that no one else in the world has ever told. And so as a result, they're always in motion. And so one of the things that I like to tell people to do, this is a sort of a natural constraint. Like in business, we think of constraints as bad, but in some cases, constraints can be good. That is because they make us think more creatively. And so what I often invite people to do is to say, what constraints can you impose that's going to help you, force you, require you to to do things in a new, different kind of way? And one of those best things is just say, as of this date, we are no longer going to do this, right? We're not going to, because that's the problem is the status quo makes you lazy. The status quo makes you fearful, you know? And so if you can, if you can force yourself to have to move away from the status quo, I can't guarantee you're going to come up with a better idea, but you're certainly give, you're going to give yourself a chance to come up with a better idea. Now, Peter, we could be talking about your book and the concepts within it for quite a long time, but we need to go ahead and bring this interview to a close. And before we do, I'd love for you to share a final thought with the listeners, whether it's to reiterate something we've talked about today or to introduce something we haven't had a chance to get to yet. What is something you'd like to leave the listeners with? So I want to revisit something I said during your initial set of questions. And it's related to one of the chapters in the book. So I I had an early reader of the book send me a text message that says, I've read 100, maybe 200 business books, and I've never read a book that talks about writing. And so one of my chapters, uh, the title is called Write It or Regret It. And um, this is not an easy lesson to enact, but I think it's an important one. I think that if you want to take your career to the next level, it helps to have a writing practice, to make a practice of writing down, recording ideas, writing to clarify your thoughts, and then eventually write to be able to communicate in a persuasive way. And so what I encourage people to do is to start small, just get a journal. It could be a cheapo 50 cent one, or it could be a $50 moleskin one, whatever you need to justify your writing. And to start to practice a daily writing practice where you just write down what's on your mind and you create this memory of what you were thinking at various times that you can revisit. And, you know, most of the writing may not get you anywhere, but every so often you hit on an idea and you can clarify an idea and you can come up with a new project, a new product 
a new way of approaching the world and um, being disconnected away from TV, away from social media, away from your phone, old school with a pen and a piece of paper in the same way the comics do with their notepad every single day, I think is a, is a cheat code for really creative thinking and an, and a useful way to, to reflect on a life that, um, that can be difficult at times. Well, Peter, if people have liked what they've heard from you today, obviously they can check out your book. And I'd love for you to speak for a second as to where they can get that if you have preferences. And where can people go to learn more about you and the work that you do, including the webinar that you have coming up in a few days? So the book's available on Amazon in all its forms. For more about, about me and what I do, you can go to petermcgraw.org. There'll be a workbook for a free download that accompanies uh, the book that you can actually take yourself through some of the exercises to, to work on some of the lessons. And I'm also going to have a link to a webinar on uh, April 8th, where I'm going to be talking about these lessons. I, I call it Shtick to Innovation and how with uh, all the craziness in the world, we can be a little bit more creative and get through this and find ourselves hopefully in a better place on the other side. Sounds good. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Now, if you would like to find out more about what Peter is doing and find ways to connect with him and to find a link to his book, you can do all of that in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com slash 074. And I would encourage you to check out his webinar. It's part of the Lead School of Business COVID-19 webinar series, and it's called Shtick to Innovation, what today's popular comedians can teach you about using humor to get through a crisis and build a serious career. Once again, you can find that in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com slash 074. Now let's go ahead and get to today's three key takeaways. The first one is this. Don't necessarily be satisfied with your first instinct. There are a lot of times when we feel like there's a certain right direction to go and we may not even have a great reason for it. But nevertheless, we head in that direction only to find that it's not quite what we thought or quite what we wanted. When that's the case... Don't be satisfied with that. Don't be okay with the direction you're heading. Take a step back, look and see where you want to go and figure out how to get there. But don't necessarily be satisfied with your first instinct. The second key takeaway is this. The status quo should be avoided at all costs. Business rewards solving problems in original ways. Now, what I don't want you to hear is that timeless truths and foundational principles don't really matter because that's not the case. The truth is, when you see the status quo, what you're not seeing is those foundational principles and timeless truths being lived out. You're seeing a lot of people living lives that really don't excite and don't engage. And that is the status quo that needs to be avoided. The third key takeaway is related to this, and that is to think in reverse. When people are going one way, try to find a way to go in the opposite direction. And this isn't about going in the opposite direction of the status quo. In this situation, you may find yourself competing against peers who are also at the top of their game. But when you see what other people are doing, don't necessarily feel like you need to fall in line with them. Always be thinking, what is that slightly different approach I can be taking? What is the different direction I can be taking? so that I can do whatever I'm trying to do, but do it just a little bit better. A great way to do this is to think in reverse. When everyone is going one direction, 
figure out how to go the other. Now, I hope you'll join us again for our first episode of next week because we're going to have a guest who was trained as an expert negotiator at Harvard Law School. She's just come out with her first book, but it's already been recognized by Forbes as one of eight books that will make you reconsider how to handle your relationships. I hope you'll join us then, and until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.